Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither you, nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Then Exodus 22, verses 21 to 31. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. And then Exodus 23, verses 14 to 19. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Avi, for that month you came out of Egypt. No one was to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year where you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. 
Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And then Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, there you go, Uni Church. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, I do hope that none of you are sitting there feeling really bad and ashamed because actually that's just what mum made before you came uh, to, to church tonight. Uh, but in all seriousness, like really, it's laws like that that make us wonder what on earth is the relevance of Old Testament laws to Christians today? I mean, we kind of get the relevance of laws like don't murder, uh, but don't cook a young goat in a mother's milk? Like what possible relevance could something like that have for God's people today? Now, at this point, I find it's very common for us as Christians to say something like this. Well, actually, I don't really need to think about that very much. I'm not under law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. So actually, these Old Testament laws, they don't apply to me. I don't have to think too hard about this. Well, is that really how the New Testament approaches it? Now, sure, there are some Old Testament laws that the New Testament says to us, hey, Christians, you don't have to obey these laws. So think of the food laws, like don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork. The New Testament takes those Old Testament laws and says, Christians, you don't have to worry about that. You can eat whatever you like. But then you flick a few pages and the New Testament takes other laws from the Old Testament and says Christians are supposed to obey them. So, for example, have you seen these words on screen? In Ephesians, where Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. Now, that bit's in quotations because he's quoting Old Testament law. The New Testament, it takes laws from the Old Testament and gives it to Christians and says, you guys have got to obey this. And then other times you flick a few more pages and the New Testament will take an Old Testament command and expand it and give that to Christians to obey. So remember when Jesus takes an Old Testament command, don't murder, and he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry at a brother or sister without cause. He takes that Old Testament law and he extends it and then he says to Christians, you must obey this. And then other times the New Testament will take an Old Testament law, but instead of applying the specific law to us, it looks for the principle behind the law and applies the principle to Christians. So think of Paul in 1 Corinthians taking the law that says in the Old Testament, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading the grain. In other words, let it eat some of the food that it's working on. And he applies that principle of feeding the workers to say that Christians should be looking after their ministers and and paying for them and making sure they're fed. So the way the New Testament thinks that Christians should approach the Old Testament law is very nuanced. Sometimes it says don't obey, other times it says obey, sometimes it extends it and says obey that, other times it looks for principles and applies that. So, uh, if your approach tonight 
to the question of how should a Christian relate to the Old Testament law, if your approach to that is to simply say, well, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, I don't need to worry too much about that, that's actually out of step, I think, with the New Testament. So how do you as a Christian, how are you supposed to approach the Old Testament law? Well, before we begin to think about how the law relates to us as New Testament Christians, the place to start, I think, is working out how it related to Israel. What was the point and the purpose of the law for Israel? Let's start there. Uh, The first thing I think I want to say is that the law was never given to Israel to save them. The law was never given to Israel so that they could obey it and please God and earn His blessing and favour. So you guys have been going through Exodus for a while now and have you noticed the sequence of events? This law that we just read was given to Israel after they were rescued from slavery to Egypt. God didn't come to them when they were slaves and say, hey, hey guys, come here, I've got a deal for you. Here's the Ten Commandments, here's three more chapters of law. If you guys keep these, if you are good enough, you will live in ways that I am pleased with and I will pour my favour and blessing out on you and I will rescue you from Pharaoh. No, God just rescues them from Pharaoh. He pours his favour and love out on them and after they're rescued, God gives them the law. The law was never given to them so that they might obey it and please God and be rescued. Rather, the law is given to them so that they know how to live as God's rescued people. Uh, You actually see it in the way that God introduced uh, the Ten Commandments. It's up on screen for us. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, See that? I'm the God who's already rescued you. I'm the God that has already poured out my favour and love on you. Now here's how to live. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And then the rest of the Ten Commandments follows and then another three chapters of law. See, the law was not given to Israel so that they might obey it and please God and earn his favour and be rescued. No, the law tells them how to live as God's already rescued people. And that new life of God's already rescued people is characterised by the restraining of their sin. The law that God gives them is in part to restrain their sin. Uh, Laws like don't murder, don't steal... They act to restrain the sinful tendency of Israel's heart. Or just take some of the laws that we read out tonight. Don't take advantage of the widows or the fatherless. If you lend money to a needy person, don't treat it as a business deal. Don't charge them interest. Those kind of laws which God gives his people, it acts to restrain their sinful tendency in their heart. But... Because God gives them laws that restrain their behaviour, many people view God as a kind of fun, spoiling uh, authority figure. A few years ago, my best friend, who is an atheist, we were at his house for lunch and he said this to me. Uh, He said, Mike, a God that tells people you can't do this and you will not do that just ruins people's fun and freedom. He said, a God that gives rules is a fun-killing, freedom-destroying God and just leads people into boring lives of no enjoyment and no freedom. That's actually a pretty common response, I think, to the God that says you shall not uh, do this and you shall not do that. 
But it was at this point in the conversation that I asked him to explain the poster that he and his wife had hung up in their living room. This is what the poster said. It was a list of family rules. Uh, Keep your promises. Share. Think of others. Hug often. Those kind of things. So I said to him, hey, any parent that gives rules is a fun-killing, freedom-destroying parent that leads people into boring lives of no enjoyment and no freedom. And he very quickly responded by saying, oh, yeah, okay, I know what you're trying to say, but come on, you've seen my kids. (laughs) Don't you know what they're capable of, he said. Do you know what would happen in my family if I gave my kids no rules? I said, of course I know what would happen. It's the same thing that would happen in my family if I gave my kids no rules. Every parent gives their children rules to restrain the behaviour that causes pain. That's just good parenting. I give my kids rules to restrain the pain and the hurt that I know they're going to create. And so we tell them, you shall not snatch toys. You shall not speak rudely to each other. You shall not hide in the bathroom and eat the toothpaste just because it tastes like strawberries. (laughs) But as their father, I've not given them these rules just to kind of spoil and take away their fun. No, I've I've given them these rules to limit the kind of behaviour that I know they're capable of, I know that they will do, and I know will cause pain and hurt in our family. And Israel's heavenly father is the same. At Mount Sinai... God gives his children, the people of Israel, laws because God knows their heart, just like any parent would. And God gives them laws to restrain their sin and the pain and the hurt that they will cause. But that's not the only reason God gives them the law. The law was also to make Israel holy. Uh, Now, holy is a word that we kind of just need to make sure we understand what it means. Holy does not mean super spiritual. Uh, Holy just means different, unique, uh, set aside for some kind of special purpose. So, at home we have the holy cutlery and the holy plates and bowls. When when we eat as a family at dinner time every night, we just have the regular bowls, they're the ones with the stains on them and the chips and those kind of things. But Uh, When we have people over, we get out our holy plates. These are the plates and bowls that are different. They're distinct. They're set aside for special uses and purposes. And the law was given to Israel to make them like that, to make them what the Bible calls holy, to make them different to other nations. Uh, if If you've still got the Bible open in Exodus, in Exodus 22, verse 31... 22 verse 31, God says this, you are to be my holy people, you are to be my different and unique people, so don't eat certain kinds of foods, don't take advantage of the poor, and then all these other laws. These laws makes Israel look very different to the other nations. But why? Why does God give them these laws to make them different, to make them holy, to make them set aside? Because they are. They are different. They are so different. They are the only people that have a relationship with Yahweh. See, that's what's going on with laws like this. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you think, why would God come up with a law like don't cook a goat in its mother's milk? Well, it's because that law made Israel very different 
to the nations around them. Because cooking a goat in its mother's milk was something that was done by the nations around them as part of a fertility cult. It it was a way of kind of manipulating the gods to make sure that the women in your country were fertile and were able to produce kids and your nation got bigger and stronger. And so when God gave them the Lord, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk, it's not because God was offended by the idea of cooking protein in dairy... No, God gave them that law to make them different to the other nations around them. So when the other nations around them are practicing this fertility cult and they're they're boiling goats in milk, Israel are not, and they just look different. Because instead of relying on these rituals, Israel just simply trusts Yahweh. Can you imagine how different that looks? Actually, all those laws about lending money, about religious festivals, about how to treat foreigners, they make Israel look very different to the nations around them. Economically, in economics, they just look different. In the treatment of the poor, they just look different. In what they eat, they look different. In their approach to sex and marriage, they look different. Why? Because they are different. They're the only people that have a relationship with Yahweh. They are different, they are distinct. Or the Bible's word is, they're holy. And that difference, that holiness which the laws kind of display, was actually to make God attractive to the nations. Because as the nations around them were boiling goats in milk to kind of twist the arms of the gods to make sure that they fell pregnant, when Israel was not doing that, what do you reckon the nations concluded about Israel's God? I reckon they started to think things like this. Why doesn't Israel's God need to be tricked and pushed and have his arm twisted into doing things for Israel? Does their God just naturally care about them? Can their God just be trusted with all aspects of life? See, the law actually reveals to the nations the character of God. So you can tell a lot about Vicky and I just by observing the laws that we give our kids. So we have a rule, for example, that our kids at dinner time, they're not allowed to leave the table until everybody has finished uh, their meal. So that tells you something about Vicky and I and how we view family dinner time. Well, it is the same with God's law. When the nations see God commanding Israel to protect the needy, that tells them something about God. When they see God commanding Israel to not oppress the foreigner, that reveals something of God's character. These laws, they make Israel holy, different. And it does that, as it does that, it displays God's character and attracts the nations. I'm going to put on screen for you Deuteronomy chapter 4, and I want you to have a look at what this says about the nations around them and what conclusions those nations draw about God. This is Moses speaking. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees, so about all these laws, and say, surely this is a great nation, it's wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? 
the law, it was given to Israel to make them holy, to make them different, to make them distinct, so that they could show the world the kind of God they worship and actually attract the nations to Yahweh. So those four points uh, on screen, they're kind of a snapshot of how the law functioned for Israel. Firstly, it was never given to Israel to save them, to uh, allow them to be good enough to earn God's favour and blessing. No, it was given to them after God had poured his favour out on them. Secondly, it was given to restrain sin, to make them holy and to attract the nations as it revealed God's character to the world. And that is why, that's why the law was never a burden for Israel. The law was actually something that was beautiful to them. Psalm 19 says this about those laws that God gave to Israel. Listen to this. They are more precious than gold, pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. For Israel, the law was something beautiful. It was something valuable. It was something attractive. That Old Testament law that we as Christians are sometimes pretty quick to say well, you know, that Old Testament law, it's kind of, it's irrelevant, I'm not under the law, and so what value has it for me as a Christian? I don't need to think too hard about that. About that law, God describes it in Psalm 19 as as valuable as gold and as sweet and as attractive as honey. So here's where it gets a little bit tricky, I think. Uh, If that's what it meant for Israel, what does it mean for us, though? How are we supposed to relate to the law? Well, I think the first thing that many of us want to sort of jump up and shout out is, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Which is exactly right. That's what Romans chapter 6 says. We as Christians, we're not under the law, we are under grace. But what does that mean? Well, uh, perhaps an illustration might help at this point. Uh, In my congregation in the morning, there's a lot of my congregation that are from countries that were under British rule at some point. Uh, So, you know, there's a few of us Aussies, but then there's also people from Singapore and Malaysia and Hong Kong, uh, all of which were under British rule at some point, but at some point gained their independence. And from that time on, uh, those countries were no longer under British rule, but under the rule of a different government, their own government. And in some ways, that helps us think about what it means to have been once under the rule of the law, but now under grace. There was a time period where God's people used to be under the law, meaning God's law was the thing that governed them, that ruled the lives of God's people, that kind of mediated uh, the people's relationship to God in terms of blessings and curses. God's people were held accountable to that law. It ruled. But that time period ended when Jesus became king. Because now it's Jesus that governs, it's Jesus that rules, and it's Jesus that lays claim over people's lives. And now people are held accountable to Jesus. And the thing that characterises Jesus' rule is grace. Which is why the Bible says we are no longer under the rule of law, we are under grace, because we are under Jesus. Now, does that mean that the law is now redundant to Christians. Well, not, no, not entirely, because one of the functions of the law for the Christian is to actually point to that. It's actually to point to Jesus. 
Because what the law ends up doing is it actually points out and it highlights all the ways in which we're sinful. It, it actually almost provokes us to sin. That's the curse of the law. We read the law and it points out that we are sinful and it provokes us to sin. And therefore, it actually drives us to realise that we actually need a saviour. Now, here's an illustration, I think, for how that works. Uh, I recently washed my car. Uh, by recently, I mean in 2016. You know, when you clean the windscreen so well, it looks like it's not actually there anymore. It's so clean. It is so clear. Well, I sat down in my car to drive it and I had to kind of just look and just touch, just to make sure that the windscreen was still there. It was that clean. But... As I drove my car into the setting sun, the light from the setting sun kind of shone through the windscreen and what once looked really clean actually now started to look really filthy. The sun, it kind of highlighted dirt and scratches which I would not have otherwise seen. And the law, it functions like that for us as Christians. The law exposes and it highlights our moral dirt and filth that we might otherwise not have seen. And therefore, it points us toward our need for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So the law, just like the whole Old Testament, actually points us toward Jesus. See, think of that time where Jesus said, the most important law is to love God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul and strength. Most important law. I don't do it. Of course I love God, but with all my heart and all my strength all the time? No, my heart is pretty divided at times. That's the most important law, says Jesus, and I break it. The second most important law, he said, was to love others as much as you love yourself. Be as concerned for others, their happiness and their well-being, just as much as I am concerned for my own. Second most important law, and I fall short on that one too. The two most important laws. When I read the two most important laws that God gave his people, it just highlights the moral dirt and the filth that is on the windscreen of my soul. It actually shows me that I've not been able to scrub myself clean. It actually shows me my need for a saviour. It actually shows me that I need Jesus and his grace. So the law inevitably points me to Jesus because it highlights my sin and it shows I need a saviour. So firstly, yes, we are under grace, we are not under law. Secondly, the law still has a function, it still points us to Jesus. And thirdly, while it's true that we as Christians are not under the law, that doesn't mean that we're lawless, does it? The New Testament, I'm sure you've noticed, the New Testament is full of commands for Christians. Think about all the commands that Jesus gives us in terms of forgiveness. Think of his commands on sex and marriage. He gives us commands about prayer, commands about generosity, commands about denying ourselves, not judging, loving our enemies. So while it's true that we're not under the law, we are under Christ, aren't we? He is our Lord We're ruled by Christ and the commands that he gives us. We're actually under what the Bible calls Christ's law. So have a look at what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says this, To those under the law, 
I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law. And at that point, we're all like, yeah, that's right, preach it, we're not under the law, Paul. And then, look at what he says, verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, look at this, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So on one hand, he says, I'm not under the law, the very next sentence, I'm under Christ's law. See, we're not under the law, but we're not lawless. We are under Christ. He is our Lord, is He not? And He does command us. The thing that characterises Christ's rule, unlike the law, is that Christ's rule is characterised by grace. Whereas the law, in the Old Testament, just leads to sin and death and judgment. Christ's rule is in grace and is covered in forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't command us. We're not under law, but that doesn't, make, doesn't mean that we are lawless. And I think here's where it gets really interesting. The law of Christ, as the Bible calls it, the law of Christ, I think, actually functions the same way as the Old Testament law did. So firstly, Jesus does not give his commands to his people so that they could obey them and earn his forgiveness and love. No, Jesus and his death, they are the only thing that rescues us. But like the law in the Old Testament, Jesus' commands are given to his people to kind of show what life looks like for God's rescued people. So think about uh, Jesus commanding us to forgive. This is how Jesus puts it. Forgive as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. He says, your heavenly Father has forgiven you. Therefore, I command you to forgive others. In other words, in other words, he's kind of saying, actually, you're already rescued. Your Heavenly Father has forgiven you. Here's my command on how to live as God's rescued people. So like the Old Testament laws, Jesus' commands are given to his people to show what life looks like for his saved, already rescued people. Secondly, just like the laws in the Old Testament... Christ's law restrains sin. So think of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry without a reason with your brother. Can you see how that restrains sin? In fact, it it does actually a better job of restraining sin than the Old Testament law of don't murder. Thirdly, the commands that Christ gives his people makes them holy, makes them distinct and different to the people around us who don't know Christ. If we as Christ's people, if we were to live out Christ's commands on sexual purity, on forgiveness, on self-sacrifice, on loving enemies, we are going to be very different to the world around us. Different, distinct, holy That's why Christ refers to his disciples as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt and light, they're distinctive, they stand out. That's holiness. Holy means different and distinct, standing out. And if we live out the commands that Christ gives us, that is exactly what we will be. Different, holy, just like Israel would have been in the Old Testament when they live out God's Old Testament law. And fourthly, just like Israel, that holiness reveals God's character and attracts the world to God. Just think of when Jesus says to his followers, let your light shine before others that they might see your deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
the world should see people living out the commands of Christ and actually be attracted and glorify God. So can you see that the commands that Jesus gives us as Christians, they actually function in some of the same ways that the Old Testament law functioned. Jesus' commands are not so that we can obey them and make us acceptable to God, but they do restrain sin, they do make us holy and different, and they do reveal the character of God in a way that will actually attract the world to Him. We're not under law, we're under grace, we are under Jesus, that is absolutely right, but that doesn't mean that we're lawless, we have the law of Christ. And those laws, those commands, actually function in some of the same ways as the Old Testament law. And I think that right view of the law, it helps protect us from two errors as Christians when we start to wrestle with the idea of law. I think, firstly, it protects us from legalism. Legalism is obeying God's law because we think that we can actually obey them well enough to actually earn His acceptance. It's the idea that you can earn your way to heaven by being good enough, by obeying well enough. We can't. No one is saved by the law. The law actually just points out our sin and actually gives our sin opportunity to flourish. Jesus actually had some pretty great words to say to the legalist of his time, to those who thought they could obey God's law well enough to earn God's love. This is what Jesus said. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that by them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me to have life. It's only through Jesus that we have life. Very challenging words for Jesus to the legalist that thinks the law exists so that they can obey enough of it to actually be right with God. We can't. And it's actually worth asking ourselves, is that me? Is there any sense that I approach the law in a way that actually I think I can obey this well enough for God to accept me? I think the second and opposite error for us as Christians when it comes to thinking about the law is lawlessness. That's the idea that we're saved by grace. We know that we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our moral performance. And so if that's the case, well, then maybe it doesn't really matter if I obey God's law or not. After all, I'm saved anyway, aren't I? Well, here's a good question for us to ask ourselves. I think this is a little test to see if lawlessness exists in our life. Are people at university, are people at your work, are people in your street surprised when they find out that you're a Christian? Because if they're surprised to find out that you're a Christian, I think that must mean that we're no different to them. Because what they're really saying is, you're a Christian? Really? Because you're the same as me. And if we're the same as them, if we're the same as the world, actually it must mean in some way that we're lawless because Christ's law makes people holy, makes them different from the world around them in ways that stand out like salt and light. Christ's commandments about forgiveness and self-sacrifice, that will make us very different and distinct as people. And so if people in our lives are genuinely surprised that we are Christians, that is quite possibly a very good indicator that there is a spirit of lawlessness in the way that we approach Christ's law. Because it meant that we are not different to the world, we're not distinct, we're not holy, or in Jesus' language, we're not salty. And Jesus had some very confronting words 
for the unsalty disciple. This is what he said. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Confronting words from the Lord Jesus to the lawless disciple whose lack of concern for living out God's law has left them unsalty and indistinct from the world around them. So there you go, two wrong ways for Christians to approach the law. Legalism and lawlessness. So how are we supposed to approach the law? Well, that is a big and nuanced topic. But what we've got on screen is a very good place to start. Number one, realise we are not under the law, we are under grace. We can never be saved by trying to obey the law. Christ and Christ alone saves by grace. And thank God that we're not under the law. Secondly, the great thing for Christians about the law is it keeps pointing us back to that. It keeps pointing us to Jesus because the law keeps showing our sin and our need for a saviour. That's wonderful. Christians, the law is wonderful because it keeps pointing us to the most wonderful truth and that is that we have a saviour. And thirdly, while we're not under the law, we are as Christians under Jesus and as our Lord, he commands us in the Bible as what is referred to as Christ's law. And just like the law in the Old Testament, that law, it restrains sin, it makes his people holy and it reveals God's character to the world in a way that attracts them. And I think if we get that, then actually we will end up joining the psalmist in Psalm 19 as he says to God, your law, it is more valuable to me than gold and it is more sweet to me than honey. Thanks be to God for his law. Amen.